Good morning. You know, I was reading uh, in my time with God yesterday morning and this morning uh, one verse that said that God takes delight in us and one verse that said that we can take delight in God. And I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I was feeling that this morning with all of you. I believe that that was some awesome worship and that God is delighting in this place right now. So thank you for being a part of that with me. I'm glad to be a part of this with you, too. My name is Drew. And I'm privileged that this morning I get to walk through some of God's word with you. Are you ready to rumble? That is the question that we've been asking as we've walked through this series. And we're going to continue to do that this morning. We're going to do something a little bit different because we're going to jump ahead a couple of chapters. And we'll go back, but there's a reason for this because we're going to be in Exodus chapter 12 this morning. And Exodus chapter 12 is the place in Scripture where God first gave his people a feast called the Passover. And the reason we wanted to spend time on that, especially today, is because this time of year, on our actual calendar, as we lead into Good Friday and Easter, is the time of year on the Jewish calendar that they would have celebrated the Passover. And at its core, the Passover is a remembrance of a specific event, but the feast they used to remember it was really about Redemption, deliverance, and forgiveness. Now in chapter 11, just before this, God had described how the tenth and final plague was going to come on the land of Egypt. The tenth plague would be a plague of death. That an angel of death would pass over, pass over the land, and all of the firstborn of people and cattle and animals would die. In chapter 12, that's summarized in, in, the, in the 12th verse. And so I'll read that for you just real quick so you have a picture of what it is that God is talking about. Because he says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So in this series, we've been seeing how Yahweh, our God, is taking on the Egyptian pantheon. And here in this chapter, he's going to take on all of them at once, including Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh was seen by his people as a god. Pharaoh was seen by himself as a god. Pharaoh did not feel the need for a feast of forgiveness. You know, we don't always feel that either. I, I've discovered as a parent that apologies and forgiveness are easy to come by, but hard to actually mean. If you know what I'm saying, I can give you an example. Just, just this week, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be a good dad, and so I want my kids to be nice to each other, and, and I want my kids to get along with each other. And if something goes wrong, I want them to make up for it. And I had this terrifying moment this week as I see one of my sons fall down the stairs. Now, now it was just the last two or three, but still, like you can imagine what's going through my head of what kind of injuries he probably just got. And as he falls forward... Revealed behind him is another one of my sons. And I'm watching this happen. I'm thinking, did you just, did you push him? What, what is going on here? And so I, I rush over and I'm comforting the one and I'm, and I'm angry at the other. And I say, okay, all right, we're, we're going to take a minute here. Tell your brother you're sorry. Sorry. What do you think? Did he mean that one? And I, and I look at the other brother and I say, Tell him you forgive him. <laughs> I forgive you. 
I don't know if either one of them meant it. But I'll tell you what, something interesting happens in a moment like that. Because I made them do this, one of them said sorry, one of them said I forgive you. But the one didn't really feel the need for forgiveness, and the other wasn't really extending it. And as God takes on Pharaoh this morning, he's coming up against a person who probably didn't really feel the need for forgiveness. Otherwise, the other nine plagues probably would have had a greater effect on him. But you see, Pharaoh believed that he was God, and he believed that he knew better how to control his people, how to control his nation, than what God might do. And sometimes, although we may not say it that way, we think that way about our own lives. Sometimes, although we may not say it that way, we think it even as we read chapters like this and say, if he's really God, couldn't he have figured out some other way besides the death of all those people and animals? And when we do that, we've really put ourselves in the position of the all-knowing, of the all-wise God. Pharaoh had done this, and because of that, he was going to face judgment. But before we get there, In the rest of chapter 12, God does something amazing because he begins to unpack not judgment, but an opportunity for forgiveness through the Passover and the feast that they would celebrate. In this chapter, the feast of forgiveness invites us to feast on forgiveness. The feast of forgiveness, the Passover feast invites us to feast on forgiveness. And so I want us to look at six aspects of that invitation this morning as God invites us to feast on his forgiveness. The first you'll see in the first two verses of this chapter. We need a new beginning. Israel needed a new beginning as well. And this is what God said. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now, they already had a first month of the year. It wasn't as if there was no Jewish calendar. They already had a Jewish calendar. They already had a first month. In fact, the Jewish calendar has multiple first months. And you can see it on the slide here because they would have a first month of the year for counting years. So if it's 2010, 2011, you know, there would be a first month of the year for crops. Now there would be a first month of the year marked by the Passover marked by their deliverance. And their months don't quite line up with ours, and we don't have all the same New Year's as they do, but we can understand this, because we have different beginnings as well, right? January 1st marks a new calendar year. But our companies have fiscal years that start at many different times throughout the year. We have school years that start in September, or if you're really unlucky, August. We have have sports years, NBA and the NFL are the two that I pay attention to. We each have individual years. Every year I count from February 16th until the next February 16th. And that's how I know I've had another year. This is the kind of thing that God is doing and he's marking the calendar. He says this moment right now when you have been stuck in slavery for hundreds of years, when you are in a hopeless situation, when you need redemption more than you need anything else, I'm marking the calendar. This will be your beginning. This will be a day that every year reminds you of what it is, God says, that I am about to do. You see, Israel probably felt the need for that new beginning, the need for redemption, the need for deliverance, the need for forgiveness, more than Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. 
The reality is, they could both use it. And God's mercy is available to all. But Pharaoh had turned his back against God, and God is going to show us how he wants to deliver his people. And so we're invited to feast on forgiveness by having a new beginning. But just as God had picked a specific time for them to remember, he also had a specific plan for how this feast would play out. In the next few verses, we see that to avoid the judgment that was coming, we are replaced by an innocent victim. This happens in verses 3 through 10, but we're going to take it in two chunks. And so look at verses 3 through 6 with me. The Lord continued to speak. He says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Now what's happening here? You see, God has told them that this judgment was coming on the land of Egypt because of their false gods, because of their idolatry. But now he's painting for them a different picture. He's called them to take this feast and for each of them, for each of us, to go out and look over our lambs and bring God our absolute best. Not that scraggly one, not that runt, not the one with the broken leg, the best, the unblemished, the perfect lamb. And then bring it into the house. On the 10th day of the month, he says, bring it into the house. So this is no longer just livestock and a part of your wealth, but this one lamb, this special lamb, this unblemished lamb comes into your home. Now, again, as a dad, I realize what that means for me is for the next few days, I am cleaning up after this lamb. (laughs) But for the kids, this is like a new pet, right? This is no longer just something out in the field among hundreds of others. This This is our friend. We get to play with the lamb. We can cuddle the lamb. We can hug and rub its soft wool. We can probably name it, too. Wooly Bully or or Fido or, uh, you know, uh, my kids are not that creative. We would probably just call it Lammy. But for the next four days, this lamb becomes like a part of the family. And what happens is because they spend time with the lamb, because the lamb came into their home, there's a much stronger sense of the fact that an innocent thing is going to die in their place. Now God is foreshadowing something for us here because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Jesus is the lamb who came from heaven on high here into our home. Jesus is the Passover lamb who came and spent time with us. Let us get to know him. Let people hug him and shake his hand and eat with him. Because God was the lamb who came into our home, we have a much stronger sense of the innocent one 
who died in our place. This picture is painted throughout the New Testament because Jesus himself spoke of this and his disciples realized that this is who he was and what he had come to fulfill. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, We know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And again, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And I love something that happens that you see in these verses. The first time we see the lamb, it's referred to in verse 3 as a lamb. In verse 4, it says, the lamb. In verse 5, it is called, your lamb. Jesus Christ wants to be your Passover lamb. But to respond to him, the third part of this invitation, as we're invited to feast on forgiveness, to have a new beginning, that there is an innocent victim who will take our place, it takes an act of faith to respond. Verses 7 through 10 describe what this looked like for the Israelites in the middle of Egypt. God said, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel, that's the above the door, of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning. Now, how does that sound? The head and the legs and the entrails. You want a little bit of that? (laughs) Well, fortunately, he says this next. And what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. The point there was that the lamb was cooked whole. This also foreshadows the way that Jesus' bones were not broken when he was crucified. He died intact. You see, God is asking his people now to respond by carrying out this feast exactly as he has described it for them. You see, he has made a way for them to be redeemed, for them to be delivered, for them to be forgiven for an innocent thing to die in their place. And he says... This is how it will happen. So it takes an act of faith on their part. Because honestly, if you've read this passage before, if you've heard this story before, if you're a follower of Christ and you've heard this ten times before, then nothing I'm saying is terribly shocking or confusing. But if you've never read this before, think about what God just said. An angel of death is going to pass over the land and there's going to be carnage everywhere. If you want to avoid it, Paint your house all bloody. Sounds a little bit weird. You can imagine what the Egyptians around them would be thinking as they come outside and and all of these Israelites, all of these Jewish people are outside with a sudden need to paint their door frames. What you doing there, fella? Oh, just just painting the door frame. Yeah, red, huh? I mean, that's kind kind of a weird choice. Well, it's blood, actually. Blood? a little bit creepy. I don't know if we want to be friends anymore. (laughs) You see, they didn't know the end of the story. They haven't seen the movie. They don't know how this goes. This took an act of faith to believe that what God said was true. And I think there's a difference here between Pharaoh 
and between the Israelites. And sometimes there's a difference here in our own minds between when we say that we believe in God, we believe that he's out there, we believe that he has some sort of power, we believe that he might do things or not do things. There's a difference between saying we believe in God and saying we believe God. What I mean by that is, after nine plagues, Pharaoh may not be able to deny that God is something. Something is there. Somebody's doing something. But hey, we've got our gods too, and our gods do things too. And, and after all these plagues, I still don't believe your God, that he is who he says he is, that he is the only one, or that he will do what he says he will do. But God is asking us to believe. God is asking us to believe him. God is asking us to believe him, not only that we need forgiveness, but that it's available through the Passover lamb. And then God wants us to be ready to act on that faith, but not only to act on it, we need to be ready for God to deliver us. In verse 11, this is how he describes the way they should actually eat this meal. Thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. He's telling them, you've got to be ready. Because now is the time, after hundreds of years of slaving in the hot sun, building pyramids and getting whipped, now is the time. Deliverance is at hand. Redemption is at hand. Forgiveness is at hand. I am your God and I am going to lead you out of Egypt. So you can't be hanging around with that flowing robe, just kind of sitting back and waiting to see what happens. Gird that thing up, man. Put that belt on. Get the sandals ready. Grab your staff because you're going to eat this feast in haste and then it's time to go. God wants us to be ready for deliverance. And many times we're not. I have a good friend of mine I play basketball with and he and I have have eaten breakfast a number of times over the last couple of years. And we just talk about where our lives are at, but but often, if we're actually going to sit down just the two of us for breakfast instead of the 20 of us playing basketball, it's because there's something on his heart that he thinks he needs to get out. And my friend is not a follower of Christ, but he believes that God is out there somewhere. And and, and a couple of months ago, the last time we sat down to talk together, he came to me with, with all of these issues in his life, things that he felt like were broken, that he wanted to be fixed. And he brought to me a couple of the things that that honestly I would just refer to as idols in his life. Things that were controlling him, things that were guiding him, things that he didn't want to let go of. And he self-identified those things and said, I think this is what's causing my issues. I think this is the anger. I think these are the addictions that are messing up this other stuff. You know, I try to just listen and and be patient and just make sure he knows that I love him. But as I'm listening, it's like, yeah, yeah, definitely. And because he brought this to me, I'm I'm thinking, he's ready, right? He wants deliverance. He wants to see something better. He wants to know joy. He wants to know peace. And so I tell him, I tell him how God can break those chains, how God can tear down those idols, how God wants to forgive you, how God wants to show you his love, how God wants to take you by the hand, delight in you as you delight in him. And it breaks my heart to tell you that at least for now, his response was, okay, that's good to know, I'll think about it. 
what is holding us back from letting God deliver us. Because you know what? I don't tell you that story to say I can't imagine how someone could be like this because I've been like this. Pharaoh was like this too. You may remember when we talked about the frogs, there was a moment that Moses said, okay, Pharaoh, we can get rid of the frogs right now if you want. So, so when would you like the frogs to be gone? You remember what Pharaoh said? Tomorrow. Pharaoh said, tomorrow. Do you realize what this means? For one more night, as Pharaoh was getting ready to climb into bed, he said, these frogs are disgusting and I don't want to do this, but you know what? Eh, just one more time. How often we do that. How often we do that with the idols that are in our lives. And I think that, I think that this is part of the reason why. There's a quote from C.H. Uh, Spurgeon where he said that false gods patiently endure the existence of other false gods. You, you see the entire Egyptian pantheon there, and Pharaoh would be one of them himself. And you know what? None of these false gods would really feel an urge to get rid of the others because, hey, as long as we're leading people astray, this is all right. We can work together on this. I mean, think about this. What are the idols in our culture, in our lives? I, I know for me, my sense of comfort can become an idol. I like to be comfortable, and I'm willing to protect that. That can become a false god that guides me more than the true god. And you know, the false god of fear gets along just fine with the false god of comfort. Because the false god of fear says you're about to lose that comfort. Something's going to shift. Something's going to change. You're not going to like it. And now I'm being controlled by fear too. And I'll tell you what, the false god of trying to have control over my own life of trying to believe that I have more control than God does, gets along just fine with my sense of comfort and my fear. Because the control says, boy, that is scary. You better hold on tighter. Try to get a little bit more control so you don't lose a sense of comfort. They get along just fine. Our lust, our anger, our anxiety, these false gods can coexist forever if we let them. But God does not get along with any of those just fine. God doesn't need to come into Israel's situation or into ours and just tweak things a little bit or get like maybe the worst false God out. God comes into our situation, into Israel's and says, I am bringing judgment on all of the false gods. I want to rid you of all of them because the freedom you will experience when every single last one is defeated, when you see me alone as God, is going to change your life. And so we need to be ready for God to deliver us, to have our belt on, to have our shoes on, to have our staff in hand, not to say, God, give me one more night in slavery, but to say, God, I'm ready for deliverance. Because the fifth aspect of this invitation, as God invites us to a new beginning, as he shows us that there's an innocent victim who will take our place, it's because there is a judgment to come. And there is one God of judgment, but also of mercy. You see in verses 12 and 13, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... 
I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is an amazing moment. Because God warned Pharaoh at the beginning of this. He said, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my child. And I will not let you hurt them. And yet Pharaoh was hurting them. And Pharaoh killed the firstborn sons of many Israelites. And now it's coming back to Pharaoh. Because he believed he was higher than God. And so there was going to be judgment through blood. But what's amazing to me about these verses, what's amazing to me about the goodness of God, is that there's also mercy through blood. The Passover lamb that he described for them in chapter 12 would be the blood on their door that when God saw it, he would pass over. He didn't say that when they fully understood why the blood was the thing that worked, he would pass over. He didn't say once they had finally earned it or felt worthy of the blood, he would pass over. He says, when I see the blood, I will pass over. Earlier in the passage, he said, this is the Lord's Passover. Sometimes we find ourselves in a place where we don't feel like we necessarily need forgiveness. You know, we, we feel like my first son who said, sorry. It's gotten to the point we've realized it's terribly. We've unintentionally trained him to think that that word somehow <laughs> makes it like it never happened. <laughs> and so now he, he'll, he'll go to our littlest guy and hit him, sorry, and walk away. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. And, and, but this is what happens. And, and if you've got kids, hopefully this has happened to you too. <laughs> I say, wait a minute, you can't hit him. I said sorry. Right? There's, there's no real repentance there. He, he thinks that because he says sorry, fortunately that means there will be no consequences here. I, I hit him, sure, but I said sorry too. Right? So sometimes we're in that place. But then I sit down with him and I explain how, as you can see, your little brother is still crying. He is still hurt. You are going to lose a marble from the marble jar because you hit him. Because what I want you to understand is I want to see your heart change. I want to see you love your brother. I want to see you care for him. I want to know that you're really sorry. Because we can really forgive you. And there are times then when we've realized we really do need forgiveness. And God says it's extended to us and I believe that, but... But now I can't forgive myself now that I've realized how bad this really was. And I know in my own life I have this wrestling match in my heart where I wrestle with my own sin, my own guilt, my own shame, my own regrets, the times I've failed myself, failed others, failed God. And I know, I know that God forgives me and I know I'm, I'm washed by the blood and I know that I'm cleansed and I know that He passes over and yet I'm hanging on to it. And, you know, medically speaking, there's actually very real damage that happens to you when you hang on to those things. When you rehearse that, that negative thinking and those, those feelings of guilt and that shame. It has a negative effect on your heart condition, and not just spiritually, but physically. It has a negative effect on the condition of your mind, and not just your thought life, but physically breaking down the cells in your brain. And the spiritual weight is even heavier. 
And there's a, a, an excellent quote from Tim Keller that really strikes my heart. Where he says that when people say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. They mean that they have failed an idol whose approval is more important than God's. Because what happens when, when I say, well, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, is that then I begin to reflect that back to God. I begin to say, and, and actually, how could he forgive me? Or, or, or what if he hasn't forgiven me yet? Or what if I haven't proved to him yet that I really understand and appreciate the forgiveness and I've just got to do a little bit more so that he knows I mean it, so that he'll, he'll really forgive me? But God doesn't want us to try to earn the forgiveness. So don't spend the rest of your life trying to make up for your regrets or your shame. Fall on your knees. Confess it. Believe that God forgives. Don't just believe in God who might forgive or that something in here says says something about if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Don't just put it up here, but believe Him that what He says He will do, He will do. And then remember, the final piece of the invitation to this feast is that the feast reminds us of God's faithfulness. In verse 14, this is what God tells them to do. After He's described all of this with the Lamb, He says, so this day shall be to you a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. He gave them this feast so that they would remember. And you would think after hundreds of years of slavery finally being free, how can we forget? But you know, the years go on and the generations pass and the the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren, maybe they don't feel it as strongly. Well, actually, this very generation. You see, when they were brought out of slavery, first they had to go through the wilderness before they got to the promised land. And in the wilderness, there was a moment where they came to Moses and said, the wilderness stinks. Can't we go back to Egypt? Like, do you remember Egypt? You know, but this happens to us, right? We want to go back. And so God is giving us this. He's putting it on the calendar. He's giving a feast to say, make sure you remember. My wife and I experienced something a little bit like this uh, just in the last couple of weeks because in the last year, uh, she had a pretty major medical crisis. And there were a lot of, you know, odds of this and odds of that and percentage of this and percentage of that and things that were, were really scary for us. And God taught us a lot about how much we trust him and what kind of things we trust him for. And we, we feel just, I, I can stand before you today saying that we feel extremely blessed because it was sort of like if, you know, we don't always get to make the plan. But if we could make the plan, it, it pretty much went according to plan. And a thing that we may never have discovered that, that could have caused her to die young, they now consider cured. And she's been in a process of recovery. And so every few months, every few weeks, you know, they do more testing to see how things are. And every time we've done a test, she's a little bit farther, a little bit farther, a little bit farther in healing until this last one. No change. We go in, we do the tests, and there's, there's no change, no more progress. But we're not all the way there yet. What does this mean? And we got discouraged. We got frustrated. 
And, and we find ourselves talking to God about, God, please, why can't this? And we're hurting with this, but we really thought this. And, and then we had a moment where as we were talking this out with each other, we realized we'd sort of forgotten everything God had already done. And that the reality is that if she never makes any further progress in the healing, she may have to take some medication for the rest of her life, but she won't die young like she would have if this was never discovered. And so we stopped feeling frustrated, stopped being discouraged, even though the setback was real, and we just paused and said, God, let us not forget. In fact, this is marked on our calendar, because uh, June 17th, Another one of the years that we celebrate. That will be 10 years of marriage for us. Thank you. (laughs) It will also be one year to the day of the surgery that saved her life. And so every year we're going to have a chance to remember, regardless of how much farther we get, regardless of what else happens in our lives, an opportunity to remember God's faithfulness, to feast on his forgiveness. You know, Jesus himself did this. Because he was the Passover lamb, because he came to fulfill all of this, even as they were to remember for generations, and they did so for thousands of years, Jesus sat down with his own disciples to celebrate the Passover. But not only to celebrate it, but to fulfill it. And in Luke chapter 22, in verse 15, Jesus says, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus is the fulfillment of of the Passover lamb. And as the Jewish people were called to remember this for all of those years, now Jesus has said, do this in remembrance of me. And when we celebrate the Lord's table together, we are remembering the innocent victim who died in our place. But unlike the lamb in Exodus 12, he doesn't stay dead. By his death and his resurrection, We can feast on forgiveness. Jesus invites us to feast on forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to have an opportunity right now to do that this morning. To celebrate the Lord's Supper, the fulfillment of the Passover through Jesus Christ. And just as they remembered it from thousands of years, so we now have remembered it for thousands of years. And we will continue to do so as we wait for Jesus to come back in glory. And I want to invite you to be a part of that this morning. And if you've never understood God's forgiveness before, then this could be the first time that you take that bread and you take that cup and say, I believe you, God. And if you're a follower of Christ, then this is an opportunity to remember. Whatever guilt, whatever shame, you brought into this place to let it go. Or if you've walked into this place feeling like Pharaoh, like you just need a little bit more control of your life, you can let it go and feast on forgiveness. 
I'd like to invite the host team to come forward and I'll pray as we begin to pass out the elements. Our God, you are our Father. And we are so thankful that in our greatest need, even when we don't always see our need, Lord, you came to us to be our Passover lamb. As we celebrate this bread, as we celebrate this cup, Lord, we're celebrating a death because we know that that blood is shed for us. And when you see that blood, you pass over. Thank you, God, for forgiveness. Amen.